What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is we're talking about the Biden administration's foreign policy. So our friend, Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, had a great piece in Foreign Affairs, which said Biden doesn't need a new Middle East policy. And this is a big debate right now because there's a element of the uh, Democratic Party that thinks, you know, well, the world stopped in, in 2016. The last four years were a disaster in every way. And so orange man bad. So let's undo everything the orange man did. And that might be a bad idea when it comes to the Middle East. What do you think? I think it's time for a commercial interruption and that you're all too, you're all too intellectually <laughs> deep and serious about national security policy when in fact okay, what, you should be, what you should be saying is... Listen to us, subscribe, <laughs> review, share with your friends, help build interest in our podcast. All right, uh, you right-wing capitalist, fine. So everybody, if you like what you hear, Though we're not letting you hear it, but if you do like what you hear once Danny stops pitching the podcast, please review, please subscribe, tell your friends, rate us on whatever platform you're listening. And Danny, can we now go and give them what they tuned in for? Oh, uh, of course, Mark. I, I'm sorry. I really, I really hate to distract from your deeply serious <laughs> approach to these questions. So, I, I mean, I do think this is a really interesting question. Even some pretty hostile voices to the Trump administration admit that there were a lot of things in national security policy that actually weren't as terrible as the overall Trump tenure. And uh, a lot of those things happened in the Middle East. So one of the arguments that, that sort of happened in the Petri dish that is Washington was, hey, once Joe Biden becomes president, will all of those retreads from the Obama administration come into office? And it's been very interesting to see that they have, because a lot of people thought that Biden was not going to be a third term of the Obama administration. Well, let me just do a little litany. So in the Middle East, when Obama and Biden left four years ago, ISIS had a caliphate over large parts of Syria and Iraq. Syria was using chemical weapons against innocent civilians. Iran was on the march across the Middle East using the money that they got from the Iran nuclear deal. And there really was very little prospect for peace in the Middle East. What did Trump do? He came in and he drove ISIS from its caliphate and killed Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, their leader. He enforced Obama's red line in Syria. Not once, not twice, he launched missile strikes against the regime for using chemical weapons against civilians. He reimposed crippling sanctions on Iran, which forced them to cut funding for terrorist proxies across the region, took out Qasem Soleimani, their terrorist mastermind. He moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which Democrats said would all destabilize the region and put peace out of reach. And instead, it did the opposite. He brokered not one, not two, not three, but four Arab-Israeli peace accords the first in more than a quarter century. That's accomplishment, quite frankly, that's worthy of a Nobel Prize. So Biden's job isn't to reverse all that progress, but to build on it. If they revert to the policies of 2016, they're gonna undermine all the progress 
that Trump made, all the leverage that he's handed them to get a, if they want to get peace with the Iranians, a better deal than the one that they had before. So I just think Trump handed Biden a very strong hand in the Middle East. So I think that the problem for a lot of people is that they have a very hard time splitting the administration of Donald Trump from the person of Donald Trump. And I understand that. Uh, You know, I really do. Uh, You and I have made no bones about the disgrace with which Trump left office. And I think for a lot of people, it's hard to admit that anything good has happened. And I think there are a lot of those folks inside the Biden administration now, you know, who have lived through this last four years in which we've seen a truly deranged attitude which unfortunately Trump validated at the end, but which characterized all the sort of assessments of his tenure. This is the piece that I wrote a couple of days ago about Yemen. You know, Biden wants to do things in Yemen that are inimical to our interests. And one of the main reasons he wants to do them, I would argue, is because not Trump. You know, Now, not Trump is just not a foreign policy, but That is the reality of what is going to guide a lot of this. And I think that the only thing that we can really watch for is that those in whom the Biden administration repose their trust, the Houthis, right? The Houthis, Iranian Shiite proxies in Yemen were designated by Donald Trump the day before his administration ended as a terrorist organization. The Biden administration said they were going to lift that designation. Within two days of that announcement, the Houthis launched four armed drone attacks on civilian targets. The Biden administration made clear in outreach to the Iranians, even before he was sworn in as president, that they wanted to start to reopen and reopen questions of the JCPOA, maybe lift some sanctions, maybe get some financial relief in. What happened? A man who has been working closely with the United States for many years was murdered by Hezbollah in Lebanon. What happened? An American contractor was murdered by Iranian allied forces in Iraq. This at least should wake these guys up to the fact that all is not as they saw it when Donald Trump was president. I agree with you, but you know, it's also... We have to keep in mind that the idea that you can separate the good things about the Trump administration or the person of Donald Trump isn't quite right because people are complicated. And the reality is we've both been extremely critical of the president's behavior since the election. But the ability to achieve the Abraham Accords, for example, can't be separated from the person of Donald Trump because you love when I bring my uh, Rumsfeldisms into the podcast. But one of the lessons that Rumsfeld in Rumsfeld's rules is that a lot of things get done in Washington because they're on autopilot, because that's how they've always been done. And so what was on autopilot in the Middle East was you cannot move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem because that's going to be destabilizing. John Kerry said moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem would create an inferno in the region and put peace out of reach. Opposite happened. And someone like Trump comes in who had never served in government, who was a businessman, who wasn't steeped in all of the striped pants orthodoxy of how Middle East policy was done. And he t- he appoints his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who has no foreign policy experience whatsoever, in charge of Middle East peace. And he read a bunch of books on the Middle East to get smart on it. And they accomplished what all the Middle East experts couldn't. So I think there's a little bit of humility that this new incoming administration needs to have, which is 
you know what? John Kerry didn't get Arab-Israeli peace agreements when he was Secretary of State. John Kerry didn't achieve all these things. Jared Kushner and Donald Trump did it. And maybe they ought to look at that with a little bit of humility and say not everything that Donald Trump did was bad and not everything about the way Donald Trump approached foreign policy was bad and that we have inherited a strong hand and we need to use it in the right way rather than trying to go back and say, let's just pretend this whole four years never happened. There's parts of American public policy where I'd agree, I wish that was true, but in, in many cases, and particularly in the Middle East, it's not true. We're in a better position now than we were four years ago when the Obama-Biden administration left. And they've got an enormous leverage with Iran right now. They've got enormous momentum towards Middle East peace. If they bring the wrong attitude, they're gonna blow it. I wish that the expression, a little humility, went with any single personality that you mentioned there, because <laughs> <laughs> that's not been my experience. You know, John Kerry, little humility. I don't think so. But look, you know, don't listen to us, guys. The right thing to do is to listen to people who actually had this experience, who people who went down this road and have been down it many, many times. And, you know, and not to listen to failed ideologues like John Kerry. That's why we asked Ambassador Jim Jeffrey to join us today. You know, he's a, a former foreign service officer. He uh, was ambassador to Iraq. He was ambassador to Turkey. He was deputy national security advisor. He was ambassador to Albania. He has served Republicans. He's served Democrats. He was most recently the special presidential envoy for the global coalition to counter the Islamic state of Iraq and the Levant. So fantastic guy, great source. We're really lucky to have him. Well, Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be well, working good. with you again, Mark. It's been a while since uh, the Bush White House. I know, I know. Those were those were great days. So you've had a piece in uh, Foreign Affairs, the title of which is Biden doesn't need a new Middle East policy. You know, there's a number of people who basically think that what Biden should do is just go back to as if the last four years didn't happen and 2016 uh, redux. Why would that be a mistake? And what opportunities is he inheriting from the last four years of U.S. foreign yeah, policy? It would be a mistake because the world is a different place than 2016. What have we learned? The first thing is that whatever the pluses and minuses of the JCPOA are, and I could argue them both ways, what we know is that from the signing of the preliminary agreement, the JPOA, you'll remember, in 2013, to the Trump administration pulling out in 2018, Iran, through its paladin, Qasem Soleimani, may he not rest in peace, ran amok throughout the region. I defy you to find someone who knows the Middle East who says Iran's position in four countries, Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, was not massively better in 2018 and 2013. And that is a huge problem for the countries in the region. That's why they have banded together, and this is the second thing, they have banded together in the Abraham Accords in essentially an anti-Iranian coalition to support the United States to the extent the United States wants to, the word I use is contest, contest Iran's presence within these four countries. Because this isn't just a military alliance, what Iran does, and we've seen this best in Lebanon, and I saw it a lot in Iraq, not as advanced, fortunately, as Lebanon, is it subverts the institutions of the very state it supposedly is trying to work with. It undercuts them, creates armies within states, blows up the monopoly of force, 
uses all elements of power, its trading relationships in Iraq, its pilgrims uh, to the holy sites for Shia Islam of Kabbalah and Najaf, uh, and everything else it can, led by its intelligence forces under the Quds Force, to expand power and turn any government into a Potemkin village. Look at the government in Lebanon today. That's the problem uh, we have. And so that's the second thing. The third thing is that you have a different world within which the Middle East is embedded. We have near-peer competition with the European Union, although they're not very good at it, at trying to you know, run big segments of our global collective security, economic, trade, world operation. What we have in the hands of the Chinese, the Russians, is not near-peer competition per se. It is an attempt to overthrow that system to overthrow that system by tearing up international law, by tearing up the sovereignty of small countries around the borders of these big actors, and to destroy international law as it applies to places like the South China Sea and to Crimea. So within that context, Iran's mini-me version of China and Russia in the Middle East is yet another reason, because what Iran is trying to do, and on the margins in the Middle East, Russia, in Syria, and in Libya, is to overthrow the regional collective security system that we set up in 1974, and with so much effort and blood have managed to maintain in a very, very chaotic, dysfunctional region ever since. Jim, I want to ask you a, a devil's advocate question, uh, in large part because I agree so much with basically everything that you've said. <laughs> I don't want to have a little chorus here of agreement. I think if we had to turn to you know, your friend and mine, Rob Malley, who has been designated as the, the Iran special envoy in the Biden administration, you know, Rob, without speaking for him, would probably say all of those things are true. But let's not forget what our priority is. Our priority is American national security, and the most potent threat to American national security is the Iranian nuclear weapons program. And that's why we've got to go back. We've got to go back four years and try to put this baby back together again. What do you say to, to that? I would say that the Iranian danger to the United States, with or without nuclear weapons and a delivery system, that would carry them 8,000 miles is an extremely far stretch. I'm not even sure I would accept that with North Korea. First of all, North Korea yet doesn't have those capabilities. They were on the point of it four plus years ago, but they didn't move much in the last four years because they were under pressure. But even with North Korea, a regime that I do think is totally irrational, I think it's very important to stop their nuclear programs. Uh, it would be my highest priority with North Korea. But with Iran, it is an important priority, in part to stop other countries from following suit, in part from the prestige and power it gives them, in part because, frankly, Danny, I could be wrong. But I think that rather you have to think that preserving the American established and led security system in the Middle East is also very important. Now, dealing with Iran's nuclear systems one way or the other is part of that security system, but dealing with Iran's other activities also is this. And the problem is, if you say, well, one thing Iran does really troubles us, so we got to focus on that, you're giving away the game to the mullahs. Well, those guys 
along with Putin and the Chinese, all uh, master practitioners of all elements of national power, whether it's terrorist assassinations in Western European capitals, whether it's supporting Hezbollah, whether it's long range rockets aimed at Israel out of uh, Syria, whether it is the nuclear program, whether it is the stifling of dissent within their own borders, whether it is, as I said, their creeping annexation of four Arab countries today, and we don't know who tomorrow. All of these are part of a program and a plan. If they get blocked on one, they'll move to another. They got blocked, at least temporarily, on having a nuclear weapon, if that was their intent. They certainly kept the option open, as we know from what the Israelis stole. They said, fine, but in return for that, the Obama administration is letting us have a free sway through the region, to quote President Obama, to I think it was Jeff Goldberg in the Atlantic, Saudi Arabia just has to learn to share the region with Iran. That is not something we ever told our NATO allies. You're just going to have to share not Eastern Europe, but Western Europe with the Soviet Union or Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Philippines. You're just going to have to share the first island chain with China. That is the problem. So therefore, my argument would be, okay, tell me how you're going to go back to the JCPOA. Tell me what you're going to do to continue to confront and challenge to contest, as I say, Iran in these other areas while you're doing the JCPOA. In and of itself, other than the money that Iran gets and the prestige it would get from negotiating with us, you know, going back to the JCPOA, it doesn't do very much. Even if you do the JCPOA, that doesn't mean you have to give up all of these other things. So continue doing what we've been doing in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, which, of course, they've managed to stop much of what we have been doing in the last uh, week and a half, and uh, continue uh, insisting that Lebanon act against the stranglehold Hezbollah has on it before the international community will bail it out. Those are good policies. Those would be consistent with recognizing that Iran is a multifaceted threat to the region, not simply a nuclear problem. So you raised the analogy with the with the old Soviet Union. So let me ask you about that. So isn't this really a classic liberal conservative difference between those who said that the way to uh, deal with the Soviet Union was through arms control versus those who said the way to deal with the Soviet Union was through deterrence and that deterrence puts you in a position where you can get better agreements at some point because we did pursue arms control. The people who are saying arguing for the JCPOA are, are the same people who are saying we need detente in the 80s when Ronald Reagan was saying, no, we need to win. Uh, we need to put maximum pressure on them and deter them from adverse behavior. And then once you've done that, you can get better agreements. Is that a fair assessment of what the difference is in philosophy? You're, you're absolutely right, Mark, but I would put it a different way because arms control, including the JCPOA and including some of uh, President Reagan's uh, initiatives, including the denuclearization proposal in uh, Iceland and in Reykjavik, and of course the INF Treaty were done on his watch. And believe me, he didn't feel he had to sacrifice containing and deterring the Soviet Union while doing these things. That is the core thing. And to put it in its real context, I'll turn to Henry Kissinger, who had two quotes that sum this up nicely. On Iran, it's Iran has to decide. Jim Jeffries' variant is we all have to decide, beginning with this administration, is Iran a country or a cause? And in Kissinger's response, another guy who did a lot of uh, arms control treaties, what he said about the Soviet Union is, absolute security for one nation is absolute insecurity for everybody else. 
many people who looked at the Soviet Union back in the day and look at Iran today see a state, a state that's a rational actor. I think Iran is a rational actor too, but in its own ideological way. They see it as a rational actor, not too different from us. No one more so than Barack Obama. That if they can learn that we aren't out to overthrow them, we're not thinking of plan, you know, Mossadegh overthrow 2.0. We want to work with them. They will then give up their silly behavior. That's mainly a response to our imperialistic behavior. I disagree with that. It's unfair to a guy like Qasem Soleimani, who put a rocket into my house one day, uh, two months after he put a rocket into my deputy's house, because whatever message he was trying to send to us, I didn't get it when my deputy's house got hit. So he figured he had to be a bit more uh, explicit. These guys fought for six years in the 1980s against Iraq. People think they were defending their country. Uh Uh-uh. They had finished defending their country by about 1981. The next six years were on a jihad, or we would say crusade, to seize the oil fields and the Shia population of Iraq as part of their expansionist agenda. They believed in what they were doing, just like the early Soviets in the 1920s believed in what they're doing. Give them credit. That guy died doing what he loved to do, expanding Iranian influence at the expense of everybody else, beginning with Washington. Let's accept that and deal with it. What was the impact of the Soleimani uh, elimination in terms of deterrence with Iran? How important was that event uh, in I think Middle it's history? very, very important. Uh, we saw that there was a rocket attack and an American killed yesterday, and that's both tragic and something that we're going to have to respond to. How, why, and where, that's what this administration is sorting out right now. But the point is, it's been over a year where we've been managing to contain the efforts on the part of Iran. The other thing is, while we have to look at these, a certain percent of these attacks are not done by the Iranians. In fact, at times we've seen the Iranians trying to manage and rein in their own militias that they've created because the Iraqi militias, unlike Hezbollah, are a large number of competing, ill-disciplined groups who have their own axis to grind against us. They were fighting us when the Iranians were telling them not to back uh, when I was in Iraq. And uh, of course, we killed uh, not just Qasem Soleimani, we killed his mini-me, a guy named Mohendis, who's been trying to blow us up since our uh, embassy in Kuwait in 1983. I mean, these guys have a long history of trying to do what they're so good at. So what we did do is not every time you take out a terrorist leader, and Qasem Soleimani was a terrorist, do you have a major effect? We didn't have a major effect taking out either Osama bin Laden. We didn't have a major, although it felt good, we didn't have a major effect taking out Zakawi. The high point of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq came after his death. We didn't have a major impact taking out al-Baghdadi. We had a huge impact taking out Qasem Soleimani. The reason is the guy was unique. When Iran's back was to the wall in Syria in 2015, because the opposition much of it armed and supported by us, had seized 80% of the country. Who went to Moscow to talk the Russians into uh, intervening? Qasem Soleimani. This guy was in a class by himself. Taking him down means that the connections, the military capabilities, he was a brilliant frontline commander. He had the respect of everybody in the Middle East. That's gone. And the fact that Iran has done nothing significant to respond to it is almost as much a prestige loss as losing him in the first place. This was a brilliant step in the right direction, again, to contest Iran's 
actions in the region, just like taking out their top nuclear science by someone a few months ago uh, was a major step forward because he was a uniquely influential guy who cannot be easily replaced, sends a signal that their nuclear program will be contested and not just by diplomats at tables with pens. So we're talking about the good things that happened in the last four years, the things that maybe changed the course of history in the Middle East. But there were some bad things, and Mark and I have both alluded to them in recent years. Mark, uh, often in his end-of-year column with the top 10 good things and then the top 10 bad things Trump did. And those top 10 bad things often contained foreign policy choices, like, for example, decisions to draw down in Syria and to draw down in Afghanistan without any strategic rationale for doing that. So help us understand, you know, we both, I think, slammed the Trump administration for doing that while talking tough on Iran, because it seemed the most schizophrenic thing to do, right? Iran's agenda is to preserve Assad, and yet we draw down in Syria. But the Biden administration has come in and basically made a similar move in Yemen, right? Our agenda is to push back on Iran, but they're basically helping out the Houthis, taking them off the terrorism list and yada, yada, yada. What should be the right posture that we have in these countries that you worked on so hard? I have a long history of opposing our withdrawing from any place. You'll remember one of the first things uh, Jimmy Carter came up with was a withdrawal from Korea. And at the time, Don Gregg, uh, who was a senior CIA officer, future uh, ambassador to Korea uh, and many other things, and others uh, worked very hard to reverse that. In the end, one of the 50 battalions was withdrawn. The point is, the president decided three times, uh, spring of 2018, before me, December of 2018, when I was actually in Syria, when the word came down, and then in uh, October of 2019, to withdraw our troops from Syria. They're still there. Why are they still there? because in each case, particularly the last two, we were able to explain to him the Iran-related secondary purpose of those forces. The argument he was getting by the people whose job it was to explain why troops are any place, the Pentagon, is, well, they're fighting ISIS under you know, the authorization for the use of force 2001. And Trump would scratch his head and say, wait a second, but I've been telling people that I've defeated ISIS. Why do I still have troops there? And it's only a handful of troops. ISIS, you say, is no longer a territorial caliphate. They've got remnants around. Gee, why can't the Europeans, who have 10,000 troops as part of the coalition next year in Iraq, why can't they take over that mission? And while there are good reasons why the Europeans couldn't, that I would spend hours explaining <laughs> the psychology of Europeans, my point is they wouldn't. And the second thing is that they didn't want any part of the containing Iran denial of terrain to Assad mission. But that was the only real reason we were in Al-Tamf in the south of the country. And it's a secondary reason we were in the north. Once we explained that in various ways by various people to President Trump, he kind of got it. And the second time he added a little fill up to it. Yeah, we'll hold the oil field, snicker, snicker, snicker. But the pitch that was made was this will be a victory for Iran if we do this. Once he understood that, but it wasn't the Pentagon who could sell it to him because they felt constrained about talking about that mission. That's what the State Department does. 
Afghanistan is a tough one. I then tried to stay away from that as much as possible. Even when I was in the uh, White House, Mark, you remember, we had uh, other people doing Iraq and Afghanistan, but I had to do Pakistan, so I had to follow it. It is a very long-term struggle where we haven't had a whole lot of success. And it's a reasonable question to ask how much longer this is going to go on. But it's also a reasonable question to ask, fine, but if the Taliban overrun the country, what are the consequences of that? I'm pretty confident that this administration, the Biden administration, is going to look at this again. With a view to upping troops, you think? I cannot predict what will come out of it. I can just predict that they will be very worried about owning what comes next after they withdraw troops. Remember, the experience of these people, and these are people who I've worked with for years, and I was very close to when I was kind of out of government, but working with them at the time, the withdrawal of troops from Iraq in 2011. Oh, that's really very, interesting. Very sensitive. Obama was for it before he was against it, depending upon you know, his debate with Romney, where he was against it, but his instructions to me in the Oval Office were to try to get it a couple of years earlier. We couldn't get it, not so much because of us, but because of the Iraqis. But look what happened. ISIS seized almost a third of the country, terrorized the entire Sunni population and part of the Shia and uh, Kurdish populations, nearly took Baghdad, nearly took Erbil, uh, required us to spend $35 billion in a five-year campaign to push them back, along with many coalition countries, and more importantly, opened the door in a way that never happened when we were there for Iran to come in because as the Obama administration hesitated in the summer of 2014, Iran was right there with forces, with weapons, even RF4s dropping bombs at one point. So this was a terrible experience for the people who lived through it, and they're all back in government. I think that they're going to think twice before they pull everybody out of Afghanistan. That's the best news I've heard uh, since, uh, since Biden came into office. I've just never understood the drive that President Trump had to get to zero. At this point, I didn't understand if we had hundreds of thousands of troops stationed in these countries engaged in major combat. But I think it's accurate to say we had more troops in the U.S. Capitol than we had in Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. These are not major deployments. And if the whole purpose of drawing down is to turn the mission over to our allies on the ground, having a few thousand troops to enable them and do things that only the U.S. military can do as force enablers, and then to have a troops position to go whack the bad guys if they start to regroup, it's just common sense. I don't understand. Why, why was the president so determined to get to zero? I didn't spend enough time talking with him about this, but I spent a lot of time talking with people who spent a lot of time talking with him, including the ones who talked him out of these uh, withdrawals from Syria. And I would put it more general, not personalize it with Trump or even his base. I would say that many, many Americans could not understand why we committed forces again and again after the bad Vietnam experience, after the bad Beirut 1983 experience, why we kept committing forces to internal conflicts that we have not been very good at resolving in our favor, either militarily or in terms of the underlying socioeconomic and particularly political dynamics. They have a point. As one of the people who've been out there more than anybody else, we are not good at doing it. The only consolation for us is I know of nobody else who is good at doing it.
Certainly Assad, <laughs> the Russians and the Iranians are not good at, you know, pacifying Syria other than their ethnic cleansing of half the population, which is what they've had to do because they have no way to uh, do this. This is very hard stuff. It's very hard to explain how it serves our national interest. I can make the argument. I could make the argument back in 1972 with Vietnam, but it's a hard argument to make. The other thing is what Trump was focused on and what this new administration is going to have to be focused on, but the uh, Obama administration was not, that was the third element I said, is the challenges to our global security system by near peer military political competitors, that is Russia and China. They're competing and they're close abroad where they can bring many military advantages to bear. They only have one front each against us. We have multiple fronts. And I think that not only Trump, but before him with his pivot to Asia, President Obama felt that it's time to, you know, why do we have 70,000 troops in the Middle East when we need particularly some of those systems? So I think the combination of it's not serving any long-term American interest, we can debate that, but I think that a lot of people think that. Secondly, a really compelling interest is dealing with China and Russia. However, when you get down to a few thousand people, the costs, particularly the casualty levels we've seen, are very, very low. And the implications and certainties, if you withdraw, are quite significant. Americans are impatient. I just had a discussion today uh, where I made the argument of, well, what we know is if we stop doing what we're doing, the other side's going to win. So better that we're in a stalemate, however messy, with a chance that they're going to lose than letting them win. And I would say when you've got very limited resources, it's better to just have a stalemate than let the other side win. And also, you might sooner or later in Syria or in Afghanistan come to a better solution. So my unfair question, as always, crystal ball, you said something that made Mark very happy. You said you thought that the <laughs> Biden administration would be revisiting some of the what, what I think we believe are mistakes made by the Trump administration. I'm looking at the dramatis personae of the Biden administration, many of whom are, are good friends and people I admire and people I know from the Obama administration. And I, I look at elections going on in, in Ramallah for a new Palestinian, maybe a new Palestinian president. I look at end of support to operations in Yemen. I look at the murder of your friend and mine, Lokman Slim, an anti-Hezbollah activist in Lebanon a couple of weeks ago. I look at what the, the pieces are that are floating around in the region. And I really, really worry about what's ahead of us. What do you see in your crystal ball? I'm pretty optimistic. I see. <laughs> Damn uh, it, Jim! I see. I see no. I see no plan on pulling our troops out of Iraq and Syria. Secretary Austin just said that he's pretty. He's got this 120-day review of basing around the world, but he came out and said that he's pretty happy with where we are placed in uh, the Middle East right now. That's also good. As I said, I think this gang will review carefully Afghanistan, including the implications of pulling out by I think May. The JCPOA, A, they're rushing into it less rapidly than I was concerned of. And I think they realize that they're going to have to deal with Iran in the region, perhaps not with my word contest, but they did not have a happy experience with the Houthis after they took one, two, three steps to reach out to them. Uh, they're certainly not going to be happy with what happened in uh, Iraq. 
And the conclusion I think these people will come to because they're rational thinkers and many of them supported uh, military action uh, when it was necessary. Many of them were opposed to it when I thought it was less uh, necessary and that's good. So they're open-minded either way. I I think they're they're going to realize that uh, one way or the other, they're gonna have to contest with our partners and we already have the partners in a package, it's called the Abraham Accords, against Iran in the region. Now, the argument, and this is where anybody who's doing the JCPOA will sooner or later land on is, but well, in order to maximize the chances to get a JCPOA, we have to be very careful what we do to Iran anyplace else. That was the thinking back in 2015 and such. People will deny that, but you look at the evidence, the uh, premature dismissal of General Mattis, actions in Syria and elsewhere, And I think that's an accurate assessment. I think that there will be a debate about it, but I don't think that the people who want to simply ignore everything else Iran is doing and put a priority of action on the JCPOA, again, they seem to be going uh, slow. And of course, they put themselves in a position, Iran has to move first, that is going to preclude, I think, rapid movement. There are ways around that position that clever diplomats can think up. But for the moment, it's a pretty... um, uh, hard and fast position that, as President Biden has said it repeatedly himself, like any president, he's going to be reluctant to uh, back off of it. So my exit question, the reason I think you can be so optimistic as you are is, and you, you're too humble to say it, but is that because you and the previous administration left the new administration a pretty strong hand in the Middle East, and uh, both in terms of containing Iran and deterring Iran and, and the maximum pressure campaign, and the most important accomplishment of the previous administration, the Trump administration, was, of course, the Abraham Accords, which are the first Arab-Israeli peace deals in a quarter century, and not one, not two, not three, but four of these agreements, which everybody said would be impossible if you destabilize the region by moving the embassy to, to U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and recognizing sovereignty of the Golan Heights and pushing back on Iran the way they did. Now we've got a new administration. And Trump, before he left, said that there were a number of other agreements in the works to build on that. Do you think that they are going to be able to succeed in expanding the Abraham Accords to other countries? What are the prospects for that? And if they don't do that, is that a blight on their record? Any new administration, including the many that I've been involved in, has an initial period where you're so excited about having that job, having security clearances, reading top secret code word stuff, that you actually think you can do everything. Whereas everybody knows that an administration at the highest levels, at the presidential level, in foreign policy does one or two things per four-year term at best. You know, with Bush in the first four years, it was uh, Iraq and fighting terrorism. Uh, There was no other major foreign policy initiative that he had to take charge of and put a lot of time and effort into. Uh, It was more diverse in the uh, kind of cleaning up the first four years and the second four years. Uh, But uh, again, getting uh, the right agreements on Iraq was crucial to him. I think that the Abraham Accord countries and the outliers, mainly Turkey, uh, which is much in the news in the last 24 hours, you'll see the sort of competing State Department statements on the Turkish incursion into uh, northern Iraq pose a problem to the administration because all of these countries, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, are problem children from the standpoint of what they're doing internally and to some degree what they have done 
in the past, Saudi Arabia in the region, although I think the crown prince is trying to rein that uh, Salafist Wahhabi influence in, and what President Erdogan is doing now. Plus, with Israel, the problem is the new administration would like to see uh, some kind of progress on the Palestinian front, which is unlikely with this current Israeli uh, government. So that's a problem, yet you cannot contest Iran in the region. You cannot even have a military presence in the region without doing it by, with, and through these four countries and a half a dozen others that follow with them, the rest of the GCC, Jordan, Iraq, Northeast Syria, a couple of others are out there. So uh, they're working their way through this. I'm convinced that in the end, they'll realize that these countries are absolutely important to American security interests in the region, combating terror, ensuring a free flow of uh, hydrocarbons, which we may not need them from the Gulf anymore, but the rest of the world does for the next 10 to 20 years, managing the move towards weapons of mass destruction, and standing up for partners and allies, which is indivisible. You walk away from your partners and allies in the Hindu Kush or in Syria or in uh, Yemen, you are going to make people in Poland and people in Korea very nervous. That's what we've seen ever since the 1940s. You've been yeah. so generous with your time. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks. thanks for doing it. I, I mean, I've been reading these things for years. Uh, I, well, you've only been doing them for a couple of years, I think. And they've really been interesting. And it's really good. I'm really happy to be part of it. And we hope you'll come back again. Sure. All right, Danny, that was terrific. I could have gone on and spoken with him for another hour because he's, he's such an accomplished and fascinating guy. And if you like that interview, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. Rate us on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast and tell your friends. There's your commercial interruption, Danny. So let, let's talk about what we discussed. One of the things I wanted to pick up the thread on was this whole drive to zero, right, in, in the region. And, you know, the idea that Americans look and say, you know, what are we doing in all these countries? Uh, you know, we're not good at nation building. We shouldn't be doing it. Why are we there? One of the problems I think we have is that for the last 12 years, if you count the eight years of Obama, and four years of Trump is that we haven't had a president answering that question, right? So Americans, we've talked about this many times, are reluctant internationalists, right? They're not looking to go out and slay foreign monsters, but if you make a case that our national security is at risk, they are willing to use force and to project American power. That's sort of a Jacksonian, you know, go to, back to Walter Mead's essay on the Jacksonian revolt, Jacksonian America, not looking for war, but if you mess with the United States, we're going to put a boot in your rear end. And nobody's been explaining, either Republican or Democrat, for 12 years to the American people saying, we have an interest in being in these places, not in hundreds of, with hundreds of thousands of troops, but a few handfuls, few thousands of troops in these countries, because if we don't, then they're going to come and get us here at home. So, I mean, it's an abdication of leadership on part of both Obama and Trump that has put us in that position. So one of the most interesting things to me is how we sustain this conversation, understanding that we haven't won in any of these places. You know, it's a legit question. We beat ISIS. That... We have won. Hang on a second. Okay. <laughs> First of all, we beat ISIS up to a point, but ISIS is in the process of coming back in Syria, my friend, and not oh, just in that. a small way. We beat well, them, sure. but they're coming back. If and... we don't keep our boot on their necks, they, they are, but right now they're beat. And but, we but, drove but, them out of their caliphate. And I'm sick. We're winning so much. I'm sick of winning, Danny. 
So, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear someone thinks that. You know, Afghanistan, we've been there for creeping up on 20 years now, Mark, which is staggering. And I would argue that the biggest problem is that everybody has reduced all of these discussions to ones about troop levels. You know, should we have 2,000, 2,500, 16,000? No, I'll just counteroffer with 30,000. And I would just say, you know, that is the way Obama saw it. That is the way Trump saw it. And I'm afraid that that's the way that Biden is going to see it. And it is a complete corruption of what our military is about and what fighting wars is about. Wars are not won because you have 5,000 or 10,000 or 2,000. Wars are won if you have an effective strategy. And the problem from my perspective is, first of all, what you said, which is that there has been zero effort made to build a constituency for these actions among the American people. Instead, our leaders like to lie to the American peoples. I'm going to be the one who ends all these wars. BS you are. Then part two of that is that none of this has been an occasion to go back, which we did at AEI when we had the surge, and say, oh, maybe our strategy isn't right. Maybe we should be doing something completely different. Maybe we need to do it with 15,000 troops or 4,000 more troops. But what we're doing on the ground, especially in a place like Afghanistan, is not working. And that's one of my biggest complaints about this. So, you know, it's a two-sided game. And our leaders have fallen down on the job, Republicans and Democrats. Well, what do you mean by not working? I mean, we, what, the reason we're in Afghanistan is to stop them from launching another catastrophic mass casualty attack on the homeland. From that perspective, it's worked pretty well. I mean, yeah, it's not work. We haven't built it into a Jeffersonian democracy, but we never were. And uh, it never, it likely and not in our lifetimes will be. But our job, you know, from most Americans' perspective, the, re the reason to be over there is not to build a Jeffersonian democracy. It's to make sure they don't come kill us again, take down buildings. So from that perspective, 20 more years. I mean, I'm fine of going with another 20 years without another- 20 more years. I, I mean, how, many, how long saying. have we had our troops in Korea? How, many, how long have we had troops in Japan? How long have we had troops in Germany? The reason that Russia didn't send tanks over the Fulda Gap in the, in the 1980s is because Harry Truman, a dem great Democratic president, had the wisdom to not pull our troops out of there. And if we have troops in small numbers and manageable numbers in Afghanistan for the next 20, 30 years, in Iraq for the next 20, 30 years, and, the, and that's what it takes to make sure we don't have another 9-11, or what could be worse than a 9-11, which is a nuclear, biological, or chemical 9-11 that could kill not 2,000 people, but 20,000 or 200,000, I think that's a small price to pay. And no one's making that case to the American people. Uh, I think most Americans would take that and say, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. But we're now going on our third president, who's probably not going to make that case to the American people. And so as a result, people say, let's bring them home. And, and isolation, the isolationist argument wins. Well, this is a much bigger conversation about why it is that we need stable governance in these places. But I do agree with you that if the price of not having another 9-11 attack is having a very small number of troops on the ground in these places, then that is a very valuable price to pay. On the other hand, there should be no misunderstanding that both ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have made huge strides against our allies and against us in the yep. last couple of years. And so the reality of what we face is in fact a lot like the era just before 9-11, which is a very substantial threat. 
And, you know, if you add to the mix the kind of threat that Iran now represents, which, as Jim said, is a much more serious threat than it was in 2013, then we are looking at some serious, serious menaces to not our friends abroad, but our own safety and security at home. That's something very worth considering. Well, what's really worth considering is doing a podcast on that. Let's find a good guest to come in and talk about those issues. And, you know, what have ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban been doing over the last few years? And why should we be worried? I think we should, I think we should revisit that in a longer episode. That'd be a great idea. I can agree with Excellent. that, Mark. Finally, you said something worth listening to. <laughs> 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 you know what the funny thing is, Danny? You say that every episode. <laughs> I'm gonna pull together a tape one day. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Alexa to do it. You said like, that last just like time, our, just like our opening, and, and you did it again, <laughs> just like our opening. Mark, you're so wise. Mark, I agree with you. Mark, this is brilliant. <laughs> you know, but then you always say, "Oh, you're you're a moron. You don't know what you're talking about." So maybe we can Make do that your for mind, your birthday, Danny. folks. That would be wonderful. Let's switch it around. <laughs> Why don't you send your adulatory comments to Mark for his great yes, wisdom? Thank you. Your complaints to me, and as always, tech to Alexa. Thanks for being with us this week, and take care. Take care. Our producer is Alexa Santry, and a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org, or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at dpletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Uh-huh.